Hello, everybody, and welcome to the End of History podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Gavin. Uh, for the last year or so, I've been writing a publication over on Substack called Destroika, which is sort of a play on words for uh, Gorbachev's policy of perestroika, uh, about current events and politics and economics and sociology and whatever else I feel like writing about at any given time. And I've decided to start an audio podcast as a sort of companion piece to that publication. Um, partly because I like podcasts and I think it would be nice to have one of my own. And also because, you know, I get that sometimes you don't want to sit down and read an essay that frankly is probably too long <laughs> for the sort of content that I think Substack, uh, you know, <laughs> is, is designed for. Um, so anyway, I've started this as a as a sort of companion thing. Uh, I'm going to do uh, episodes uh, every week for the essays that I've written up to this point. And uh, from then on, I'm only going to release podcast episodes when I write a new essay, which is about one every month, or if I just feel like sitting down with some friend of mine and, and talking about some nonsense or whatever, maybe we'll do that too. Uh, I've never recorded a podcast before. I am not familiar with audio equipment. I just have this HyperX microphone I bought from Best Buy and my MacBook Air, and I'm just going to try the best, try to do the best I can. So, uh, you know, be nice to me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I know you won't. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, today's episode is going to be uh, based on my essay, uh, Epistle to a Publican. Uh, it's about tax reform, which uh, I'm sure is a very sexy topic to <laughs> be begin a podcast with. Is I'm sure that's not going to be boring at all. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I hope you enjoy and I, I hope this goes well. The basic fundamental truth about modern politics is that the only thing anyone really cares about is the economy. Once you scrape away all of the surface level culture war stuff about abortion or education or immigration or, or whatever else the nightly news decides is a big deal this weekend, basically people care about what they pay in taxes or sometimes what other people pay in taxes. For the conservative, the middle class will always be paying too much, and for the progressive, the wealthy will always be paying not enough. Taxation is sort of this hidden hydra of modern political life. It's everywhere, and it's awful. You know, you've got your taxes on usage of the roads, your tax on income, your tax on capital gains, the property you own, the quote-unquote sinful things you buy, things which are imported, things which are exported, taxes on wealth, etc. What none of the politicians or pundits ever really seem to consider, or if they do, they keep it to themselves, is the role of taxation as a means of top-down social engineering. Sociocultural changes often appear to happen naturally, but are really just astroturfed. You know, the, the time-honored tradition of proposing with a diamond ring really isn't anything more than a post-war marketing effort by the De Beers diamond cartel. Taxation is similar. Anything which is taxed is, by its very nature, disincentivized. Sometimes this is the intended effect. A tax on alcohol is meant to reduce alcohol consumption. A tax on cigarettes is meant to reduce smoking. But we should keep in mind the Lefarian effect of taxing 
earned income heavier than passive income, which is the norm in most modern democracies. You know, in the United States, on average, earned income is usually taxed at a marginal rate of about 39%, whereas passive income, like dividends and capital gains, is usually only taxed with a maximum of 20% from the federal government. This can discourage wage labor in favor of capitalistic passive income. It would not be unfair to suggest from a Marxist perspective that the basis of this tax system is meant to benefit the bourgeoisie at the expense of the proletariat. So, you know, what do we do? The answer lies, as many things often do in this day and age, with the complex and yet exceedingly simple ideology of a long dead and nearly forgotten man, in this case, Henry George. His political beliefs, commonly called Georgism or Geoism, though I'll consider, I'll continue to call it Georgism for the sake of continuity, form a core part of my ideology, which I call the fifth ideology. In the 2012 Disney film, The Lorax, uh, at least at the beginning of the film, uh, like the, the beginning of the events of the film itself, uh, the villain is uh, not actually the Wunsler, but uh, the mayor of Thneedville. He's a cruel capitalist named Aloysius O'Hare, and he makes his money selling clean air to the residents of the town, whose air had become polluted by the Wunsler's capitalist activities, his, uh, his pollution. Now, he is a villain He's very obviously a villain because he has commodified a resource that is innately understood to be held in common by, uh, in this case, the, the people of Needville, but you know, broadly by all mankind. Obviously, no one should have to pay for air because it's a free natural resource and available to anyone. It's the most absurd thing uh, you could conceivably commodify. Henry George's philosophy, Georgism itself, is based on an extension of that basic premise, the idea that there are certain things which no one can really truly claim a right to own because they haven't created it. It's a logical outgrowth of um, the so-called Lockean proviso, named after John Locke. Uh, his labor theory of property included a principle uh, which he called uh, homesteading, which is it's now entered the lexicon. Uh, Locke understood homesteading to mean that uh, where something is unowned and unclaimed, anyone can appropriate it by simply improving it and can exercise usage rights provided that those rights do not encumber the rights of others. No one invented land, right? Now, maybe God did if you, if you choose to believe in that sense, and therefore no person can truly own it. I own the microphone that I'm using to record this podcast because I bought it from Best Buy, right? And Best Buy owns it because owned it before I did because they had bought it from the good people over at uh, at HyperX, and the good people at HyperX owned it because they had created it from materials that they had bought. Ownership implies one of two things: it either implies purchasing something, or that you have created it. Ultimately, ownership relies on labor. Labor is a bad theory of value, but it is a good theory of property. So by what right then does anyone own land? You might own the house that your land sits on, but you don't really own the land itself because ownership implies payment for work. Therefore, 
land, which was here before us, and will be here long after we're gone, is can be deemed to be held, to use the French to use a French legal term, in usufruct by all mankind. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, usufruct is a legal arrangement seen in certain civil law jurisdictions that base their system of property rights uh, on the Napoleonic Code. The arrangement basically is that uh, you know you have someone who owns something, uh, the naked owner, and there is someone who holds an usufructuary right, the, the usufructuary. The arrangement is such that the usufructuary holds the rights to the fruits, because usufruct comes from the Latin term usus fructus, use of the fruits, but he does not have the right to the underlying property and cannot damage, sell, subdivide, or alienate it, though the usufructuary can sell, donate, or bequeath his rights to the fruits. The Georgist view of land ownership is basically usufructuary. A landowner does not really own the land he claims, at least not in an elodial or radical sense. Instead, he is an usufructuary with uh, the people as a collective, or perhaps uh, if you're religious with God. He has the rights to the fruits of the land, to its resources, to building a house or an office building upon it, or to fishing its waters, but not to destroying the land itself nor polluting the sea. This is the premise upon which Georgism is based. But what does this mean in terms of political reality? Certainly, even if land is held in common, we cannot have a system where the only legal landowner is the state or the crown, and everyone merely rents it, as this would be a disaster. After all, there is a real example of such a system where only the government can own land or, quote, hold it in trust. There are Native American reservations in the United States. Because Native Americans don't own land on their reservations, not even in a Georgia sense, they can only rent, they often have no collateral with which to put up um, against to take out a business loan to start a business or to, you know, generally improve their lot in life. The government ownership of land on Native American reservations is a big part of the reason why those reservations tend to be, you know, economically destitute areas. The solution for George was therefore not uh, government ownership of all land, but rather uh, a, a unique tax called the land value tax. It works like this. Land ownership is an usufructuary relationship, but the usufructuary has the right to have others respect and recognize his rights. This right originates not from the elodial title of a monarch, nor from socialist land tenure, but rather from an original homesteading via the Lockean Improvement Doctrine. As a result, land ownership looks the same under Georgism in a cursory sense, but it does not behave the same. Since, in exercising the Georgist land use rights, a landowner has deprived the rights of others to that land, seemingly violating the Lockean Proviso, he should reimburse society as payment for his monopoly over a portion of the earth. The only way to reimburse society, realistically, is to pay a tax. This tax is the land value tax. It's determined by taking the market value of a real property, subtracting from it the value of any buildings or improvements to the land, and determining the economic rent of the bare land itself. In other words, if there was nothing here, what would the landlord stand to make by renting that plot of empty land given the location and the size. That hypothetical economic rent is the land value tax and is to be paid to the people in their stand-in representative, the state. It should be noted here that the land value tax is not merely a tax on land area, but on land value. This is a common misconception. Such a graded taxation system protects rural farmers from paying ridiculously high taxes. 
If implemented correctly, honestly, and without compromise, a land value tax would be able to replace all other forms of taxation and for good reason. Income tax and corporate tax disincentivize hard work, whether in the form of wage labor or entrepreneurship. Corporate taxation is particularly harmful for a truly liberal society. The best and brightest that money can hire spend more time and effort hiding money than in using that money to better society through capitalist um, entrepreneurship. Through capitalist pursuits, I mean. Taxation on the allodial prop ownership of property is morally wrong and amounts to theft, as does taxation on the accumulation of such property or its uses. The land value tax is not even really a tax, at least not in the traditional sense. Instead, as we have discussed, it is an usufructuary payment collected by a third party in order to maintain the contract which it represents. It destroys economic rent, which is the primordial evil from which most of the modern liberal world's woes are derived. Georgism is often derided, uh, especially by certain neoliberal types uh, who support things like a value-added tax or, um, or a flat rate tax, as being too obvious because its solution is so simple in its construction. Early Georgists use this to their advantage, making reference to a popular joke in the 1800s about the image of a cat in the shrubbery. Um, there's a famous quote from a, a speech given by uh, Judge James McGuire to the New York Anti-Poverty Society sometime in the 1880s. It's, it's not exactly clear when, but he said, and I'll, I'll read, this, I'll read uh, this portion of the speech. I was one day walking along Kearney Street in San Francisco when I noticed a crowd in front of a shop window. I took a glance myself, but saw only a poor picture of an uninteresting landscape. As I was turning away, my eye caught these words underneath the picture. Do you see the cat? I spoke to the crowd, gentlemen, I do not see a cat in the picture. Is there a cat there? Someone in the crowd replied, nah, there ain't no cat there. Here's a crank who says he sees a cat in it, but none of the rest of us can. Then the crank spoke up. I tell you, he said, there is a cat there. The picture is all cat. What you fellows take for a landscape is nothing more than a cat's outlines. And you needn't call a man a crank either because he can see more with his eyes than you can with yours. The correlation is as such. Uh, the role the land plays in the economy is patently obvious once it's pointed out, much like the cat in the landscape painting. I can see the cat in Wall Street investment firms buying up homes across the United States, in Zillow pricing homeownership away from the middle class, in the vacant lots across the post-industrial Midwest, in the nightmare of the McMansions in Sarasota, and in the endless destruction of natural resources, which are, by all accounts, the birthright of all mankind. So tell me, dear friends, do you see the cat? Unlike many other high-minded ideologies, Henry George's land value tax is perhaps alone in its relentless practicality. A tax on the value of land is considerably easier to collect than any other common modern tax, with maybe the sole exception being the quote-unquote inflation tax that uh, a lot of Keynesian economics relies on. The difference, of course, being that the inflation tax is an enormous burden on society, while a land value tax would be an unquestioned benefit. Consider, for instance, the income tax problem uh, previously discussed. Income and wealth are very easily hidden via complex schemes like the double Irish, the Lilo, and the Dutch double dipping, which are both hilariously named and painfully real. Income tax codes are often so complex and full of loopholes that an entire accounting industry, you know, companies like H&R Block and TurboTax, have sprung up solely to find ways to exploit 
these codes. Can anyone say really that H&R Block or TurboTax really provide a net good for society beyond the service that they provide, which only exists because of government inefficiency? Intangible wealth, by contrast, cannot be hidden in the form of land. Suppose you live in the suburbs uh, around a large city in the United States. You may not know what your neighbor is worth or how much she makes, though you might be able to infer some things by the kind of car she drives or the things she owns. You don't really know, but you can clearly see how much land she owns in that lot next to your house because her lot is comparable to your own and because the deeds are accessible through your county or city registry. If it is fairly apparent for you, it is palpably and painfully obvious for the statist panopticon, even a pared-down libertarian or minarchist one. In contrast to traditional property taxes, where the levy is based on the total taxable value of real, of real property, including improvements and constructions, the land value tax does not disincentivize work on property since the tax base does not change with these improvements in the short term. After all, why should someone, why should a homeowner or a business owner be punished for improving their house or their business? Instead, the LVT disincentivizes vacancy, disuse, and misuse, creating a positive externality for the surrounding community's property owners. The land value tax is not based on how land is used nor is it built upon an alterable tax base. There is, after all, a nearly infinite capacity for wealth and income in the world, which is the basis for most modern taxes, but there is a perfectly inelastic supply of land. There is only so much earth to divvy up amongst ourselves. As Tony Soprano said, buy land, AJ. God ain't making any more of it. Although, in fairness, the Dutch might have something to say about that. Commercial and residential rent, while they might appear to be composed of a single fee to a landlord, are actually two different rents. A rent of the land upon which the property sits, and sometimes, but not always, a rent on the property built upon the land. Since there is a limited supply of land, a landowner cannot simply pass the price of the land value tax onto his tenants, but only the price of the property which he has a justifiable right to charge since he genuinely owns it. A landlord who tried would merely see his tenants move sites. The quantity and price of rental properties exchanged remains identical after the implementation of a land value tax, and it does not disincentivize land ownership, resulting in a system with absolutely no deadweight loss whatsoever. It is the only tax which does not cause economic inefficiency. Both sincere Georgists and those merely observing Georgism do tend to often complete two important terms, which I would like to disentangle, the tax on economic rent and the land value tax. They're often perceived as interchangeable because the most easily apparent form of unfair economic rent on an usufructuary commons is that of land. But there are other sources of economic rent besides the land, which should also be taxed as additional forms of revenue for both their social importance and for their imposition of economic efficiency. Natural resources, for one, are considered part of the land for the purposes of Georgist economics. As such, both extractable and severable re natural resources can be sources of taxable revenue because they can be factored into the value of the land. 
Suppose a land a landowner suddenly finds a massive oil field under his house. Uh, this would be an example of an extractable natural resource. The value of that land would naturally appreciate, and as such, his economic rent increases and therefore his taxes. This also applies to severable natural resources like stocks of fish or timber, since land in the Georgia sense, and indeed in the broader economic sense in general, also includes water. Additionally, even extraterrestrial domains could be considered land. Airway rights, the monopoly over electromagnetic frequencies like radio channels, and even geosyn geosynchronous orbit space. It's a hard word to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, there is a much less obvious form of economic rent, one which is not location-based like land, it's patents. People, whether individual or corporate, have the natural right to production and manufacturing, and if a person wishes to have an unnatural imposed monopoly over a manufacturing technique and to have that monopoly respected by society, he should pay a fee for that right, hence the patent fee. There are two practical considerations to be made when contemplating Georgia's tax policy. One, the assessment of economic rent, and two, the distribution and collection of the levy itself. So realistically, how would a government assess land value in order to ascertain economic rent so that the land value tax and other taxes can be assessed? As mentioned before, economic rent is basically equivalent to actual rent minus rent on improvements. That is, you know, what you actually pay for your apartment minus the monthly value of the portion of the building which you rent. Ideally, leases and, uh, <laughs> ideally, leases and sales would be so liquid as to constantly know what the economic rent would be from sheer context, but the market is simply not that liquid in reality. Instead, there are a variety of practical solutions to be considered, including a simple calculation where LVT is equal to the sale value of the property determined by governmental assessment or similar sales times the real prevailing yearly interest rate. However, there is a much more in-depth system for economic uh, rent calculation, uh, which was developed by one of the earliest economists, the great British political economist, David Ricardo. Uh, online, they are sometimes humorously referred to as, uh, as the 6R formula. Uh, that is Ricardo's really rather right rent rules. Uh, the 6R formula follows the development of tenure from virgin land to highly to a highly developed society. Consider a frontier space with 30 plots of land. Six of those plots are prime. They yield $4 a year in profits when worked by a single individual. There are then six second grade plots that yield $3, six third grade plots yielding $2, six fourth grade plots yielding $1, and six fifth grade plots yielding 50 cents. We'll go through the change in returns and circumstances through three phases of development. Uh, for our purposes, for the purposes of this uh, thought experiment, a plot of land uh, is nothing but the maximum amount of land that a person could farm alone. And we're also going to assume that this is a truly free market that uh, does not have any coercion. We're economists, we sometimes have to take liberties with these sorts of uh, thought experiments. The first, phase, the first phase begins as soon as the first person arrives. At this stage, since land is free, anyone who shows up simply takes a plot of prime space. 
the gratis freedom of land at this phase renders wage labor pointless. If you wanted to hire a laborer, you would have to pay the laborer the full land yield of $4 since that laborer could just as easily claim his own land and make the same amount of money. As such, all landowners at this stage are yeoman farmers who work for themselves. At the midpoint of this phase, when there are exactly three farmers, the total return is $12. And since all of it goes to the farmers, the return to land is 0% and the return to labor is 100%. The first six frontiersmen will necessarily seize the six prime plots, but the arrival of a seventh sends the economic situation into the second phase. Now, the best property has been staked, and there is a clear difference in real value between the grades of plots, rather than a mere nominal value difference. The seventh frontiersman has a choice. He could claim his own plot of land and make $3 per year in profits, or he could rent more profitable land from the prime holders. The formula for rent on any plot is given as the actual yield of the plot minus the maximum yield the lessee could make on free land. $4 in actual yield for the best, you know, $4 minus $3 is therefore equal to $1. This process continues as land is taken up by new frontiersmen and other frontiersmen rent from the better landowners until the maximum rent reaches $3.50 because the prime land yields $4 a year and the lowest grade of land yields 50 cents. The third and final phase begins when the last plot of land is taken. This obviously causes the value of land, all land to increase and even the fifth grade land begins to command a rental price. Eventually, as the land becomes ever more burdened, a maximum productivity will be reached and the rent price approaches the difference between the basic yield of a plot and the minimum standard of living. As rent approaches this theoretical maximum, the return to land approaches two thirds of total rent. As such, the economic rent of a given property can be reasonably estimated as two-thirds of the rent when the annuitized value of any improvements are taken into effect so that the land value tax can be calculated with the formula delta equals two-thirds c times r minus ai where c is the percentage of economic rent to be captured in george's original formulation 100 percent modern georgism is ultimately an outgrowth of a philosophical and economic movement in 18th century france called the physiocrats uh, which is derived from the greek for government by nature uh, the physiocrats most importantly their leader uh, francois canet believed that all wealth derived ultimately from the agricultural cultivation of land their ideology contrasted itself with the earlier school of mercantilism which primarily focused on the balance of trade and the accumulation of surplus, and with the school that succeeded them, classical economics. Inter interestingly, the term physiocrats is actually a modern invention. The physiocrats themselves preferred to call themselves the economists, technically les economistes. With the rise of classical Smithian or Ricardian economics after the publication of The Wealth of Nations in 1776, the already relatively obscure physiocrats faded from view. The concept of the physiocrats would, however, eventually be revived in the late 19th century by the American economist Henry George, whose ideas were popular for a few decades among the liberal crowd until the political left was overtaken by trade unionists and more traditional Marxian socialists. 
Indeed, some non-socialist liberals even today recognize their Georgist past. Uh, the land remains the official anthem for the British Liberal Democratic Party. However, in the wake of the 2007 housing crisis and the subsequent economic collapse across the globe, a crisis, by the way, whose origins lie squarely at the feet of private land ownership and speculation, there has been somewhat of a resurgence in Georgist political thought, especially in online communities. These days, it's difficult to go more than 20 minutes on political Twitter without seeing the Japanese beginner chevron emoji, which is used to indicate a Georgist user, including me. Uh, in the same way that a rose represents a social democrat, a black flag represents an anarchist, an eagle, a paleoconservative, uh, a blue cap, a supporter of universal basic income, or the Statue of Liberty, a right libertarian. Much of this resurgence has been driven by a group called the New Physiocratic League, uh, which is nominally an association of Georgist parties across the world under the guiding hand of the great and criminally underrated neo-Georgist political economist Philip Allen, author of a, a fantastic book called The New School of Economics. Georgism isn't a monolith. Certainly, I disagree with some of the policy positions of the New Physiocratic League, and I don't align myself with the largest Georgist party in the world, the Kuomintang, despite the fact that the fifth ideology is decidedly inspired by the ideas of both Philip Allen and Sun Yat-sen. More than three centuries of heated debate have produced various implementations of the land value tax, both real and nominal, which can broadly be grouped into three categories, Orthodox Georgism, Geosocialism, and Geolibertarianism. Uh, this episode, I've mostly focused on the original Georgist ideology, which is sometimes called Orthodox or True Georgism. This ideological group focuses on the core elements of Georgist belief, you know, universal capture of land rent, an absolute absence of other taxes, the economic efficiency of land value-based tax systems, and the inherent inefficiency of private land ownership. However, these days, it seems that this group is perhaps the smallest and least relevant among political economists, largely because the financial world is just a lot more complicated and interconnected than it was when Progress and Poverty was first published. And some of George's assumptions, some of George's assumptions, have to be reevaluated in the age of zoning laws and mortgage-backed securities. Much more common, at least online these days, is a current of leftists who have integrated Georgism into their Marxist worldview, despite the legendary rivalry between the two men for whom those ideologies are named. This group focuses more on the social justice aspect of Georgism: the reduction in homelessness, better land use, reduction in environmental damage improvements in racial equity and, believe it or not, police brutality, and help for the poor. Ultimately, however, most of these types are disinterested in actual Georgism, as opposed to a Georgist aesthetic, you know, the appearance of old-school radical liberalism. Many of these geo-socialists, which is at best a generous description and at worst an outright lie, only see fit to include the land value tax with other levies like a wealth tax, a highly progressive personal income tax, and a severe corporate tax. Ultimately, these sorts of tax policies only serve to undermine the very principle of the Georgist worldview, and these sorts of people should be dismissed entirely, tossed in the trash can of ideology, along the remainder of Marxist demagoguery. Finally, there are the geo-libertarians, a right-wing or at least centrist coalition of classical liberals and neoliberals who are mostly concerned with the economic implications of a land value tax, as opposed to the social implications which occupy the minds of geosocialists. 
Georgist land reform is seen as a path to greater liberty, to a reduction in control by both governments and MNCs. Many geolibertarians do not believe in universal land capture based on the Ricardian law of rent, but instead prefer a system of annual percentage taxation of total unimproved value. So a property that's valued at $400,000 with 200,000 improvements, and say the owner pays an annual tax of 6% on the 200,000 unimproved value, 12,000 a year. This is also against the spirit of progress and poverty, though admittedly less so than the geosocialists. Many of their arguments are in fact valid. Georgism would result in a highly limited tax base, which in turn limits governmental authority and power. It is a fundamentally libertarian idea based on the free market principles of the early liberals. A popular slogan among modern Georgists is after all, free trade, free land, and free people, or some variation. So where does this Georgist view of land fit in with the broader fifth ideology? Am I an orthodox Georgist, a geosocialist, or a geolibertarian? I propose a new, truly 21st century interpretation of Georgism, which I call geo-holarchism. In the ideal nation, the limited and highly democratic central government is supported by a single primary tax, collection of economic rent, mostly the land value tax. Other taxes are levied, including electromagnetic spectrum, channel exclusivity taxes, patent fees, and usage levies on anything public provided to the people, though those, are, though those are not traditionally considered taxes. Any taxation on wealth, income, whether personal or corporate, earned or passive, imports or exports are forbidden by law. Additionally, no tax is levied for the purposes of social engineering or on the back of anything of elastic supply. This greatly limits the size, scope, and power of the central government. However, any local government is free to collect other forms of taxation as they see fit. Indeed, the conception of holarchy provides us with a good roadmap towards a meta-modernistic implementation of Georgism. Any land value tax must be able to manage four things. The tracking of land ownership deeds, the estimation of economic rent, the collection of the tax itself, and the distribution of remainders. There is a way to provide solutions for all, all four of these problems. And it is a solution which admittedly is probably going to make some of my more neoliberal listeners fairly angry. It's the blockchain. In the ideal nation, all land is cataloged and surveyed in detail with the location, resource information, and ownership written onto a non-fungible token registered to its lawful owner, or to be more technical, its lawful usufructuary. Additionally, resource rights, frequency monopolies, patents, and any other sources of economic rent are similarly cataloged, NFTified, and, and listed on the blockchain. In this way, the ownership of any piece of taxable property is easily ascertained, with information difficult to hide either from the central government or from prospective tenants or buyers. It is perhaps the only valid application of the NFT platform. <laughs> Certainly better than buying those stupid apes. These non-fungible tokens are not merely items held by personal wallets, mind you, but are in fact to be part of a broader smart contract through which the land value tax is paid. Based on information provided through oracles to the broader network about land rent, as well as information stored on an individual land deed NFT, the economic rent of any particular piece of land can be easily and instantly calculated and reassessed in a heartbeat. 
Once the LVT is calculated, the owner will have a full year to pay that amount to the relevant wallet. Failure to do so results in the seizure and auctioning off of the property in question. By managing the entire real estate market through a single smart contract network on a blockchain, the central government could keep track of land valuation and more easily predict tax revenues. This not only prevents capital flight because of the immovability of land, but it also allows for a high degree of wealth tracking. Part of the resurgence of Georgia's political economy, at least on Twitter, has taken place among a group that calls themselves the Yang Gang, uh, supporters of Silicon Valley entrepreneur Andrew Yang's abortive attempt at securing the Democratic nomination for the 2020 American presidential election and the, then his race for mayor of New York in 2021. Yang's campaign was largely based around concerns about increased automation in, in manufacturing jobs in the United States and his proposed solution, a universal basic income of $1,000 per month for every citizen in the country, no questions asked. This was a popular proposal, but many of his former supporters became drawn to Georgism for a similar concept from progress and poverty, the so-called citizen's dividend. George's idea was that any remaining tax revenue left after funding the government would be redistributed among the citizenry. This is because the population as a collective are after all the naked owners of all land. And those who exercise a monopoly over the land must pay for its use just as an usufructuary is obligated to pay a fee to the naked owner of a property. Blockchain technology makes the citizen's dividend much easier to implement. Uh, Consider the concept of blockchain democracy. Uh, elections could quite easily take place using a proof of identity network like IDANA or a proof of identity decentralized application running on something like Tezos. And that very same program could be used to distribute a citizen's dividend back to the people, one check per citizen or per voter. While it is sometimes focused on quite heavily by neo-Georgists, the citizen's dividend ultimately amounts to nothing more than a mere footnote of Georgia's political and economic theory, at least in practice. Governments are far more likely to, if bound by a limited tax base and a severe limitation on raising revenue through debt financing, spend all of the money they take in and leaving what little remains as surplus for emergencies than they are to redistribute it in the form of a citizen's dividend. It would just be too politically costly. What if one year due to budgetary changes or an emergency like COVID-19, the central government was required to cease or reduce the dividend. There would be uproar and chaos, and that government would be more likely to do the economically disadvantageous thing, keep the dividend and borrow money, than the politically disadvantageous thing, reduce the dividend and keep the budget balanced. As a result, this foresight does limit the political reality of even the most ardent of Georgia's governments from ever really implementing a citizen's dividend in, the land, in a land value tax system in the first place, at least on a national scale. Localized universal basic income was based around some other tax base raised through a Hellenic decentralized application is far more likely and should be left to the decisions of localities in keeping with the spirit of sphere subsidiarity. Therefore, for my own sake, I dispense with the national citizens dividend as a fundamental part of Georgism. Georgism and the land value tax have, despite the recent slump in its political popularity since the interwar period, remained commonly discussed and widely supported among academic, social, and economic circles, the so-called, you know, inner party or whatever. 
Since the physiocrats invented the dismal science, economists from Smith to Ricardo to Friedman have all defended George's theory in one way or another. Politicians on both sides of the proverbial aisle have long discussed, sometimes even in secret or in their memoirs, how they wished they could have implemented a land value tax. Georgism was and remains a largely left-wing or at least liberal idea, but it has found support even among the right, from President Hayes in the United States, to Prime Minister Winston Churchill, to the great unifier Sun Yat-sen in nationalist China, and even the arch-conservative host of firing line William F. Buckley Jr. himself. Labor leaders like Samuel Gompers, Terence Powderly, and Ida Wells have been fond of the idea in order to put pressure on organized capital. Cultural figures, even those that are or were not politically motivated, have also historically been very fond of Henry George. Leo Tolstoy, Upton Sinclair, Aldous Huxley, George Bernard Shaw, Frank Lloyd Wright, Albert Einstein, Henry Ford, Clarence Darrow, and so on. America's famous board game, Monopoly, was originally invented by a Georgist, not a socialist, as is sometimes reported, to demonstrate the evil of private land ownership. Georgism has remained popular in the upper circles because it is so plainly and obviously a valid, workable, and true ideology. All that is necessary to see the evils of private unregulated land ownership and the property taxation schema that comes with it is to look outside. I might not know what to do about the inflation or the Russians or the crime in the street, but I know what can make the United States and indeed the world economically viable, socially fair, and politically free again, and it really is as simple as changing the tax base. The United States, and indeed much of the West, and soon probably much of the East, has succumbed to the so-called death in Baton Rouge phenomenon. A newly built city has a few years or a few decades of boom time due to some natural resource which is overexploited, and as a result, the economy becomes inherently tied to that resource. When the resource is drained or it becomes more expensive than other alternatives, the city slowly begins to die. The urban center is drained of capital and people flee to the suburbs where land is cheaper, creating a sprawling nightmare landscape. Finally, because of economic backsliding, the land in the inner city becomes inexpensive enough to be worth it, and people from the suburbs begin moving back in, driving up the prices and forcing out previous inhabitants. This is what has happened in Baton Rouge, Chicago, Milwaukee, Buffalo, and to an extent even New York City over the past century. It is a problem entirely prevented by fairly pricing and reasonably managing land. Liberals used to stand for something. We used to care about people, what happened to them, rather than the bottom line of soulless corporations and rent-seeking landlords. The countryside is full of wasted space. The entirety of the American countryside these days is composed of malls, convenience stores, four-lane highways, run-down family farms, burnt-out industrial brownfields, chain restaurants, poorly constructed plywood houses, and gas stations. Now, modern liberals only seem to care about engaging in cultural warfare with the conservatives, being aligned with them in political economy and with the socialists in social politics. Gone, it seems, the days of real liberals, liberals who stood for something, liberals who cared about the people on the ground, people like William Jennings Bryan, Edmund Burke, or David Lloyd George. It's time for a new political liberalism in line with George's 1910 people, people's budget, a liberalism appealing to the progressive political elements for its care of the poor and its focus on minority rights, housing equity, and social justice derived from Catholic social teachings, and appealing to the libertarian and conservative political elements for its concern for free enterprise and the importance placed upon a powerful, liberated economy. It is time to do as both the Bible and the Quran say. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. 
unto God belongeth the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth and whatever is therein. It takes no St. Augustine to appreciate what is meant by that verse in Leviticus, nor a Sufi exegesist to understand that ayah. Georgism needs a new face for the modern age, one built on cryptographic technology instead of the old-fashioned bureaucratic nightmare that the French love so dearly. Likewise, the fifth ideology needs a tax base from which to fund its central government. I therefore propose the great liberator, collection of economic rent. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.